welcome to the Commons Cast. We're glad to have you here. We hope you find something meaningful in our teaching this week. Head to commons.church for more information. Welcome here today, everyone. If we have not met, I'm Bobby, and I am one of the pastors in the community here at Commons. So how's your January going for you? <laughs> good, maybe? Maybe not so good? I mean, it is a particular day and week, isn't it? Well, I also have a number of people in my life who have a really hard time with January. And it turns out that that is really normal. There's even a date on the calendar to honor our post-Christmas blues. It's called Blue Monday, and this year it's on January 20th, so kind of be aware of that. The internet calls Blue Monday the most depressing day of the year. And maybe you're thinking, gosh, Bobby, like I was already kind of bummed out about January, so where are you going here? But I hear you, January can be a bit of a struggle, right? It really can be. And if you have a case of the Januaries, let me say, please, 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 take good care of yourself, especially this week. Like, just take good care of yourself. And let me also say, do we have a series for you? We are starting the new year with our steamiest teaching series, Swipe Right. Maybe, just maybe, it will, you know, kind of warm you up. Today is part two in our series, Swipe Right. And while the series isn't necessarily about Tinder or Bumble or the always changing world of online dating, we are taking time at the start of the year to consider our lives as sexual beings. So whether you've been married for like 40 years, or you spent this week going on like 10 Tinder dates, or you just celebrated your fourth wedding anniversary, hey oh, that's me. How we live in our bodies and how we live our most intimate relationships is spiritual. And yes, this includes those of us who aren't really that keen or engaged with partnership right now. Maybe you're kind of post-partnership and life is pretty good that way. Maybe it's just being hard to date and you're not sure it's really worth all the trouble. Maybe things haven't gone the way you want in the romantic department. And you know what? That is all fine. We are not elevating a certain view of family or marriage or bodies, nor are we trying to tell you how far is too far or who should put what body part in another person's body. What we're interested in is human flourishing and the sacred spaces between us and the ways God is present in our thirst for more because our sexuality and our sex lives are not just places where we hold wounds, but our sexuality and our sex lives can be places where we are healed. We started the series talking about brains, and next week we'll talk about bodies, but I am here today to talk about the soul. And I'm calling this sermon, Bumble for the Soul. 
And if you don't know, Bumble is the dating app built for women to make the first move. It wasn't around when I did some online dating, but I really wish it had been. But enough about my dating past. Today we are talking about the soul and we will explore distance and difference. All our sexy crushes call the prophet and soul satisfaction. But before we dive into all of that, please join me as we pray together. Our loving God, we name the fact that some of us have a really tricky time with this topic, with sex. Maybe we carry some unrealized longing. Maybe sex just hasn't been that great for us. Maybe we carry some trauma or pain and it makes us feel pretty scared, alone, sad. Thank you that you aren't distant from our sex lives. And we can turn toward the mysterious ways that you welcome our learning. And you trust us with our own story. And you hope for wholeness in our bodies and brains and souls. Jesus, you show us what it means to be human and what it means to meet the divine in our own skin and the skin of another. So Spirit, won't you guide us towards a more healed and a more whole sexuality, we hope, with great care. Amen. So, I want to start by telling you what Lamar Jackson means to my marriage. Now, I married a man who loves sports, but guess what, you guys? I hate sports. Okay, that is a little bit of an overstatement. If you play sports, of course I'm interested in your sport, but usually I couldn't tell you what team I cheer for because I don't care. And then I married a real sports fan. And lately I hear a lot about Lamar Jackson. And you know what? I actually love it. Lamar Jackson is the quarterback of the Baltimore Ravens, and when my husband Jonathan talks about Lamar Jackson, there are little pink hearts in his eyes. And over the course of our Lamar dialogues, I've learned about Jackson's poise and presence in the pocket. I've learned that Lamar Jackson won the Heisman Trophy in his sophomore year in college, and then he just got even better after that. And I've even learned some sports stats, but I'll spare you. But you know what? I had no idea I cared so much about Lamar Jackson until a couple of weeks ago when we were in San Francisco and I walked by a group of college-age guys and I heard blah, 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 Lamar Jackson and my heart skipped a beat. Even when I'm just listening to Jonathan talk about Lamar Jackson, we are strengthening our intimacy. Dialogue is strength in intimacy. It's how all of the stuff that we care about inside finds its way out and into the heart of another. 
And today we look at the intimate dialogue between Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. So let's get to today's conversation. We are in John 4, and Jesus is getting into trouble with the religious establishment in Judea. So he leaves Judea and on his way back to Galilee goes through Samaria. Now, we are told in the passage that Jesus had to go through Samaria, and it's not exactly true. There were two ways to go from Judea to Galilee, one through Samaria, and the other by crossing over to the other side of the Jordan. And Jewish travelers typically avoided Samaria and took the Jordan route. So what's the deal with Samaria? Well, Jews didn't like Samaritans, and Samaritans didn't like Jews. They had similar but distinct histories and similar but different holy sites. In fact, in the century before Jesus, Jews destroyed the Samaritan temple on Mount Gerizim, so that sucked for the Samaritans. But then in 6 CE, Samaritans snuck into the temple in Jerusalem and scattered human bones. So that sucked for Jews. The fact that Jesus is compelled to go through Samaria is making a point, and the point isn't geographical or historical, it's theological. The story is meant to convey something about God. How the divine like skips borders and denies boundaries. How God will speak with whomever God wants to speak. So let's hear the story. So in the middle of a hot, dry day, Jesus is weary from his journey, so he sits down by a well in Samaria. Now, folks familiar with the Hebrew scriptures would know that the scene of a well is a big deal in Jewish narrative. Wells are where boy meets girl. Think Isaac and Rebecca. Think Jacob and Rachel. Think Moses and Zipporah. So we've got some kind of boy meets girl story here, only it verges on the offensive. Jewish boys don't meet with Samaritan girls. So verses 7 to 10 read like this. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, for centuries, commentators have read the Samaritan woman as a woman with corrupt morality or without the theological fortitude to have the kind of conversation Jesus engages her in. And you know what? This is garbage. And we're going to push back against this like loose woman interpretation later in verse 17. But let's be really clear about our location in the scriptures first. Time and time again in the Gospel of John, the writer draws us to a divine and human exchange that centers on mutuality. 
the sharing of blessing and bounty and whatever we need for the journey. And somehow that sharing goes both ways. And throughout the dialogue, we will see Jesus close the distance on difference. It's like Jesus is saying, oh, women and men shouldn't speak in private? Watch this. Oh, Jews and Samaritans hate each other? I don't play like that. Oh, you think some people exhaust grace? No, not possible. It is in the space between this woman and Jesus that we see the mutuality of God, and that mutuality insists on closeness. And you know what closeness looks like with God here? It looks like need and thirst and gift, metaphor, conversation, inquiry. Jesus' presence does not dominate the woman. He doesn't reduce her or diminish her. She's allowed her questions. She's given all of this space to process the encounter. But Jesus and the woman are not immediately on the same page. And it's going to take some work to get close. And this feels so real to me because I've never found relationships to be easy. Relationships aren't easy. They aren't really meant to be. They take work. You have to break a sweat to cross distance and difference. There are no shortcuts to intimacy and nearness, but curious dialogue and close can close the distance on so much of our difference. But like, how much difference is too much difference? Like, are there spaces that are just too great to cross? I mean, should you date someone who isn't a Christian? Or should you support that for others? What happens if you do marry someone who is a Christian and then years later, he or she changes his or her mind about faith? Because that can happen. So what then? And how do you know when your sexual proclivities are right for you or right for the person that you are with? As a pastor, people ask me these questions all the time, and I always have all the answers. I'm kidding, of course, but I do think about this stuff a lot. I once knew a rabbi in Vancouver who used to bless mixed-faith couples in synagogue, Jews and Christians forming family, Jews and atheists confirming partnership. And you know what she said about these bonds? She said that if we can figure out how to love across religious differences in our families, then there just might be hope for peace in our world. Now, I am not saying that you have to agree with her or want interfaith relationships for yourself or for your kids. But let me tell you, I have never stopped thinking about forming family like this. Because one of the most rewarding things in life is love that crosses distance and difference. 
intimacy that you work really hard for. Dialogue that doesn't skip what's important to the ones you love because sometimes taking the path of Lamar Jackson leads straight to the one that I love. And I think that's where Jesus' metaphor for living water comes from. Because we are so thirsty for so much more than water. Like, we are thirsty for meaningful connection that makes us feel alive. And we are thirsty to be seen and known and cherished at the deepest level. And we are thirsty to be enjoyed for who we really are. No hiding, no denying, no pretending. And here's the deal. There is no way that we can quench thirst like that with just a quick drink of water from an old well. But as intimate as this conversation between Jesus and the woman will get, there's no make-out scene here. What we do get is this holy intimacy that we can learn from. After Jesus and the woman's dialogue move from all of their distances to the details about the water of life, the woman probes, Sir, you have nothing to draw water, and the well is just too deep. And here she thinks Jesus is referring to this spring that's below the well. She thinks that the natural spring is the supernatural water, and really, that is a good take. But then she insists that there is no way that he, a dusty man, tired from a long journey, could be greater than Jacob, like patriarch Jacob, who gave the well and used the well and found the well to be sufficient for his sons and for his livestock. So Jesus takes the metaphor further. He responds, everyone who drinks this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks the water I provide will never thirst and more. The water I give will become a part of your inner life, like a spring inside of you, welling up to eternal life. And the woman says, yeah, I want that. I want that water. I don't want to haul this water from this well anymore. I am tired and it is hot. Give me this magical water so I don't have to come here in the middle of the day alone anymore. Now, it sounds pretty woo-woo, but Jesus isn't making this stuff up. Jesus draws from the metaphor in Judaism. In Judaism, the wisdom of God can be thought of as this spring dispensing peace to all humankind. Another way to pick up what he is putting down here is to think about the phrase eternal life. And while ancient Jewish tradition had no coherent belief in life after death, the Gospel of John has this unique understanding of eternal life. John's Gospel, of course, supports the resurrection life Jesus offers, but the emphasis throughout the Gospel is on eternal life in the present. So if salvation means being rescued from danger, 
and brought into the kingdom and restored to health, then salvation is not just something we are reaching for in the afterlife. Eternal life is the fullness of life now. It's feeling safe and being made whole and knowing that you belong here, now, and together. What could your soul want more? And speaking of the soul, way back in ancient philosophy, people thought there was this like really clear division between skin and spirit, the physical and the spiritual. And in this traditional duality, the body and the soul are separate, and of course the soul was always thought of as superior. But over time, Christian thinkers began to question the division. Biblical scholars made the case that there was no distinction between matter and mind, or the divine and the world. And since the 17th century, neuroscience has demonstrated the interrelatedness of physical and psychological occurrences. And theologian Joel Green makes this affirmation. Taken as a whole, the biblical witness affirms the human being as a biological, psychological, and spiritual unity. And here's where I'm going with this. We tend to cut the whole into parts to master it. I just did that this morning with an orange. You can see we do this with individuals anytime we reduce a person to a part of their whole. But we also kind of segregate relationships. We divide relationships up all the time. I want this kind of friendship with this person. I want this kind of intimacy with this person. I want this kind of hookup with that person. And we peddle a smaller humanity when we divide it up. But what if God's love to us flows through all relationships? And when we put our relationships together, we find ourselves whole. Like, I am absolutely healed and saved in my marriage with Jonathan. Our intimacy makes me more whole. But I need more than him. And you need more than a lover, too. You need multiple conversation partners. You need people who get your jokes. You need colleagues and bosses who respect you. You need mentors and young people who look up to you. You need adversaries to sharpen and tame you. You are going to see beauty and attractiveness in more people than just your partner. And you will have friendships that have nothing to do with your faith. And you are welcome to learn from people you aren't trying to change. Every interaction, every spark of connection, every intimate exchange holds some potential to heal you. But there is a warning here too. If you need more than a person can give you, if turning towards one person means the betrayal of another, if an exciting connection is taking you away from your honest self, then there is more work to be done in your own soul. 
There is likely a hidden part of yourself that you need to look at in the light of day. So back in the story, there's this deeper complexity to the woman revealed in the middle of the day at that well. Jesus told her, go, call your husband, and then come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now live with is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Now, it is important to notice what Jesus does not say. He does not say that she has been divorced five times. We often read that onto the text. But there is no evidence of anyone in the ancient world being divorced five times. And a man would not marry a convicted adulteress without a significant fortune to her name. It's not likely, it's much more likely, it is much more likely, that tragic loss has landed her in her current state. So possibly the death of some of those husbands, or no dowry to form the sixth marriage, or maybe the sixth partner is already married and so her status is actually more like a concubine. Whatever the cause, her situation simply does not translate as like living in sin or shacking up. Add to that another thing Jesus does not do here. He does not offer her forgiveness. There's no rebuke, no condemnation, no shame. The woman is not the one who needs forgiveness here. And for centuries, men have interpreted the woman's story as if her life was marked by some gross impropriety. But the truth is that she has little to no agency when it comes to her marital status. So when the woman shows up at this well all alone because her history does make it hard for her to be around others, Jesus meets her right where she is. You can be so close to God, even when your story is hard for others to understand. You know that, right? And you know what else is true? The details of your intimate past or your personal decisions or your complex relationships aren't really the business of strangers, but they are always the business of God. And when you welcome Jesus' company in your relationship history, you might notice that the divine does not judge like we do. Thankfully, other interpreters see the woman much more clearly. New Testament scholar Lynn Kohak calls the woman an inquisitive religious seeker. And if you read further in the story, you will see that the townspeople actually listen to the woman, tell them about Jesus, and they trust her. So in this story, it isn't confirmed that we need to know anything about this woman's sexual past. Honestly, that doesn't come up. What does come up is how having Jesus know her past, whatever the details may be, restores her. She says as much when she says his name. The woman says to him, I can see that you are a prophet. And this one line opens up so much. 
Several times in the Gospel of John, we are drawn into an important theme that Jesus sees and knows all. Back in John 1, there's a story where Jesus seems to know about this man, Nathanael, before Nathanael ever meets him. And in John 2, the writer says that Jesus knows what is going on inside each person in a Passover crowd. And now in John 4, Jesus is called prophet for knowing the particulars of this woman's private past. Here's the thing about a prophet. In the Hebrew scriptures, prophecy is history. Prophets are the historical books which tell the events of Israel's past through a person who names the truth. So whether a prophet has a book named after him, or a prophet meets a woman at a well, or a prophet connects with you in your chair, the work of a prophet is to name the truth about who you really are. You know where else prophets hang out? In therapist's offices and in coffee shops where friends make time to listen and in text messages and books that remind you who you really are. I believe that we convey the prophetic to each other. Anyone who sees you and moves you along in your story toward healing and wholeness is a holy prophet. If we hope to fix the broken parts of our sexuality, we need to name the truth for each other. You likely will not hear a voice from heaven telling you how to live your sex life. You have to trust yourself and the holy prophets who love you. There is no other way. So here, let me kind of give it a try. Your sexual past does not determine your future. And you can move past the abuse done to you because it was never your fault. And you do not need to follow someone else's rules as if God would be so far away from your own soul. If you can't or don't know how to live the truth of your life, please talk to someone. I'm not saying that your friend or your therapist or your pastor will always get it right, but you will know it when they do. You will know it in every part of your being. It will be like living water for your soul. So back to the text. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Like, what a microphone drop moment. It's like finally they are standing there and they are like face to face. Now, you may not have noticed an interesting progression in the text. So let me point it out. First, the woman calls Jesus a Jew, highlighting their differences. And then she calls him sir. 
as the distance between them dissolves. And next, she declares him prophet. It's this leap of intimacy when she feels seen. And finally, she wonders if he's the Messiah transcending their human interaction. And I love the freedom that she has to find her own way. I mean, could anything be more satisfying? She is so moved that she leaves her water jug behind and she bumbles into town saying, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. And Jesus does not force her to stay by the well until she fully grasps like who he is. I imagine her like running and him laughing and the disciples returning from town stupefied to find themselves in the wake of an encounter like this. It's like their chemistry is still sparking in the air. I mean, maybe it's not sexual, but it's like not not sexual. Because the sexual is always about our inner lives. The work of the soul is sexy. Like you can be single and chaste and still so sexy. And the sex ship may have sailed for you and your ability to connect to others in your own existence in the world is sexy. And you can do it two times a week with your partner of 15 years and still find ways to heal each other in the bedroom because that is sexy. The point isn't to become some sex god or get everything that you think that you want. The point is to find in your sexuality something that reaches into your soul, into the deepest part of who you are. And then when you get there to find God waiting for you to, in the middle of a hot day, when you thought you were alone, someone might ask you for a drink and your soul will finally feel safe in love and maybe even met by another. Please join me as we pray. Loving God, what a gift it is to be people, bodies, brains, souls, open to so much pleasure. We know our vulnerability is also a place of nakedness and fantasy and longing. And all of that is part of the sacred human experience. Somehow you love us for it. For those of us who want more healing, more wholeness, and more joy in our lives, won't you invite us into those sacred spaces? May our imaginations be renewed as we live in the world that you have made with care for all of creation. God, will you help us to be good, gentle, attentive lovers. Help us to be clear and compassionate and patient partners. And if we are still waiting for an encounter that could bring us into just a new chapter in our lives, will you show us the way? So spirit of the living God, present with us now, enter the places of our longing and our woundedness and our desire and heal us of all that harms us.
Amen.